Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined in the studio tonight by Research Fellow in the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society and the Emerging Technologies Research Lab. What a mouthful. <laughs> Dr. Tao Fan. Hey, Flick. Good hey. to be here. It's lovely to have you, Tao. Many listeners, keen listeners, will have heard you on Primal before, but it's been a while. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, I'm your resident sci fi expert. That's why I come to do it. So I'm here for. <laughs> you are indeed. <laughs> and we've also got academic and cultural critic, Dr. Clem Basto. Hi. Feels good to say I that. Know. <laughs> this is like my alternate. I feel like a superhero. Like, I'm super. <laughs> On Superfluity, I'm just Clem, but then I can come on Primal Scream and be Dr. Clem. <laughs> Dr. Basto has arrived. Yeah. So you have recently submitted your PhD in screenwriting at RMIT, so congratulations, Thank Clem. Thank you. And, of course, you can be heard every Tuesday night on Superfluity. On tonight's show, we'll discuss the recent developments with the Writers Guild of America strike and the ongoing negotiations happening with SAG-AFTRA. We'll also ruminate on the future of cinema and the role that AI might play. We'll finish up the hour with our review of Gareth Edwards' sci-fi blockbuster The Creator about an ex-Special Forces agent recruited to kill the elusive architect of advanced AI. I was I was torn as to whether to say blockbuster because, mm. as we'll talk about later, it didn't cost, relatively speaking, all that much. I really love that for tonight's show we've got we're starting with two sides of the one coin. You know, on one side we have the very real discussion going on in film industry about how AI is impacting writers and actors and and the films that are created. And then we have in the creator this idea of a future in which there's this battle between AI and humans. We are all affiliated to the university. We have each been involved with the strikes that are happening. Many listeners will have heard about that. Clem, you've been involved with the University of Melbourne strikes. Yeah, Um, we just finished another week-long strike, mm. uh, which this time was um, across all departments, so all NTU members at Melbourne Uni, which was great because we did have another one earlier um, which was a s- smaller in the sense that it was an, only a number of different schools um, and departments. And I think maybe there was a bit of a, oh, well, it's just the art department, you know, like mm. that kind of, but this one was very, uh, felt very persuasive. I mean, you know, it remains to be seen from a negotiation perspective, but yeah, it was uh, um, a, definitely an unprecedented level of, of action at Melbourne Uni, which um, which it feels very, you know, we're all very proud to be a part of. Mm. And it's great to see so many other universities also getting involved. From memory, Swinburne, Monash, where you're based, Tal. That's right. Uh, RMIT. RMIT. Yeah. La Trobe have been involved or? Um, Deakin question. was a part of the, um, uh, uh, the university-wide ones in May mm. as well. Yeah, but... You know, what we're seeing at the University of Melbourne is is not unique to that no. one institution. This is like a, uni- like a university sector-wide crisis, yes. which is why we're seeing almost every university in the state take part. It's really interesting how these strikes and the visibility of these strikes have really shifted the conversations that are happening with strike culture mm. and, and with how people understand the disruptions that are caused by strikes, which is intentional. 
the writer's strike, which started in May and we'll discuss in, in a bit more detail in a moment, that has also changed how aware people are, how people are joining the conversation. So at, at the moment, I'm on strike. Um, so I'm at Monash University. Like you, Flick, I've, I've been working uh, as, you know, contract to contract for many years. Um, um, most people might not know that most of the university tutors, people who teach you in universities, are almost all casual teachers. You know, um, I think a university-wide survey uh, found that something like up to 70% uh, of university staff are casual. At Monash, it's about like 55%. Um, um, you know, and that's one of the things that we're negotiating at the moment. Mm. We're asking for more secure jobs. We're asking for fair pay. We're asking for safer workloads. So at Monash, we're on strike today, Monday the 9th of October, starting at midday uh, till Wednesday the 11th um, to, to bring attention to all the things that are happening, how are these things are affecting our lives. Mm. Uh, and we're really asking, you know, other staff to get involved. If you're not a part of the union, please, please do join and join us on the picket lines uh, at Clayton and Caulfield. And we're also asking students to take part as well because really, you know, the students are the last lifeblood of the university mm. but the university has have really put education last as part mm. of their priorities otherwise why else would they teach you know treat the teachers the way that they do why else would they not pay them you know to to take you you know to prepare properly for tutorials to answer emails to do the pastoral care all of that work the things that are memorable about university mm. all that is voluntary labor on behalf mm. of staff mm. and they rely on us caring about the students which we all do so you know faced with a student having a crisis at 11.45pm, we answer the email, but we're not paid for that, you know, and the students are struggling too. It's the the unis have very happy to take their money, um, in some cases a lot of it, uh, and I don't know where it's going, you know, mm. and this is the case across the board. You know, it's not trickling down, um, well, it's not trickling down at all, but it certainly <laughs> doesn't make it to the people who create the learning conditions for the students, which yeah. is the teachers, tutors and, and lecturers. Mm. Absolutely. I think that is the, the question. If you're a student in a university right now yeah. to ask is like, where is my money going? Absolutely. Because at the moment it's not going to your teachers. Like, you know, we're seeing classroom sizes balloon up to like 30 students per one teacher. Um, you know, it is it is hardly, you know, it's going into like big fancy buildings, for example, but the people mm. who have to like occupy those buildings and, be, and, and do all the work inside of those buildings aren't compensated for their labour. Mm. Um, and the same time you have like vice chancellors being paid like absurd amounts of money. Oh, three times as much as the prime minister. Yep. Yes, at, at, <laughs> at Monash, at Monash, our VC was paid one point four million dollars. You know, more than the prime minister, more than like you know most senior public servants, and arguably, you know, they don't work. 10 times more than the average. No, person. and I would also add to that, you know, there has been record um, truly shameful illegal wage theft under their watch. If yeah. I was running a business and, you know, had to pay back $45 million of stolen wages, I'm not sure that I would be in line for um, a raise, but <laughs> mm. they seem to keep getting them. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and even and they won't even own their mistakes. Yeah. You know, it's, this is not just an accounting error. This is like a calculated thing that they do. At Monash, you know, there was $6 million worth of wage theft. And when that was brought up with them, rather than, uh, so somewhere at Melbourne Uni, for example, they sort of owned it, they paid it back. There's still ongoing things around continuing wage theft mm. for sure. At Monash, they tried to retrospectively change the EBA to say oh. it was not illegal. Wow. Mm. And the Fair Work Commission has just ruled on our side, which is a massive win, that's which is a great. massive win. So they will have to pay it back. Um, but that's that's the attitude at the moment, mm-hmm. like such contempt mm. uh, and such like kind of devious tactics to try and get around, uh, you know, respecting and paying the workers what they should and what they're owed. But the strikes are having an impact. It is really uh, empowering to see that 
in the social media feeds, in seeing how many people show up, and, and not just staff, students, and also the the broader community. Yeah, I think I think even so called normal, you know, non university, but like you just all you need to do is give them some of the conditions that we're working under. You know, I shared on my Instagram that um, so I currently have three different casual contracts at once um, mm. at Melbourne, and the way that it works when you do your pay um, your time card is. Each of those contracts has a different person who's in charge of approving it. Often they are also casual, but if they're not, they're, they're t- super overworked because they're, you know, a coordinator or they run a department. So if any of those people just don't get around to approving your contract, your time card in time, it holds up all of them. So mm. I had a situation where the small, you know, my two-hour contract uh, time card didn't get approved. Therefore, the other 27 and a half hours of work that I did didn't get paid. And that's apparently legal mm. for the university to just say, this is just how our system works. So, you know, sorry. Um, and you're not going to get paid for another two weeks. And people were absolutely <laughs> stunned. Like, you know, it's just, yes. I think that a lot of people still think that the university sector is that we were, you know, we're hanging around in those beautiful sandstone buildings with our gowns on, like, discussing theory in the quadrangle. But um, it's it might be like that for someone, but no one that I know. Well, and I think that is what's so jarring about this and getting that message across is I remember being in those in those beautiful sandstone buildings and and not necessarily being able to pay my bills that no. way. So it's such a profound moment that we're in right now and I'm glad that I've got you both in tonight to be talking about the strikes that are happening with the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA and, and the kind of parallels with, with our own lives. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. So 12 days ago, the Writers Guild of America strike officially came to an end after 148 days of striking, making it the longest interruption to American film and television production since the COVID pandemic, as well as the second longest labour stoppage that the WGA has performed since the strike of 1988, which lasted for 153 days. So the Writers Guild of America started the strike in May over a labour dispute with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, a MPTP. It's really important to note that this historic win was made possible by the thousands of screenwriters who went five months without work in order to hold the line. Now, the WGA represents uh, almost 12,000 screenwriters and the strike is part of a series of broader Hollywood labour disputes that are happening. The Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, SAG-AFTRA, Um, That strike has not been resolved and continues to this day. We discussed the strikes on the show back in July when members of SAG-AFTRA announced that they would be joining the writers' strike. It's important to note that this is not a joint strike, it is a double strike. So separate separate contracts are being reached. For listeners who might have missed that episode, can you summarise what the main issues of the strike were for, for actors and writers? Um, well, for writers, I mean, they're kind of similar but not the same. Um, both both unions are concerned about the possibility of, of what AI will mean. Uh, it means different things to both mm. unions. So um, for the Writers Guild, that was more to do with um, studios potentially using AI to punch up scripts, to write scripts, um, to essentially take their jobs away. Um, with SAG-AFTRA, it is, does seem to be around the ideas of AI, um, you know, de-aging, reusing people's likenesses, which is 
Uh, I mean, it, it is already happening. I mean, mm. you know, the Dial of Destiny, famously, they used a lot of machine learning to de-age. But, but that was with with his consent. You know, it was like, use my back catalogue, here you go, make a young me. And he was on board with that. But I think what they're worried about is the possibility that the studios will have this power to um, just recreate actors. Mm-hmm. One of the suggestions that AMPTP brought to the table, which was, you know, roundly um, laughed down by everyone, was this great deal that they suggested that... Uh, background performers, so extras, um, would be able to come in, get paid a day rate, which is usually, you know, a hundred bucks, a couple of hundred bucks, get a full body scan and face scan and then be used in perpetuity as a background, you know, image um, and never have to work again. Hooray for them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that sounds like fair remuneration. <laughs> Somebody has been watching the Congress. <laughs> so, yeah, they were, you know, the AI stuff I think was very newsy. The rest of it was was that sort of more granular, um, the issues that have arisen particularly for the writers in the streaming era. So the mm. last time there was the big writers' strike, it was still just it wasn't a blip on the horizon, but it, it hadn't become this... You know, the SVOD market hadn't become this all-conquering. All I mean, mm. you know, in almost every studio has a has a streaming service now. Netflix has become huge, you know, um, Amazon video as well. So a lot of the um, questions around things like residuals, which were just not getting paid. So yes. not in the way that once upon a time, if you had a show that went on cable or, or it, um, you know, was rerun in the afternoons, you would get remunerated appropriately for that. And um, I think one of the most terrifying things, and I guess it's a bit like, you know, those of us in the uni sector sharing our terrible time card issues was seeing writers show their residual checks, which were occasionally zero dollars, but they still go to the, you know, some computer spits this check out and mails it to you. And another parallel between the the university strikes and the strikes that are happening for the actors and the writers is this question of transparency to Mm. do with with money, you know, how much money these shows are making, like you said, the residuals and how popular they are. There's been no transparency for writers. So you have uh, writers, you have actors who are creating these shows um, and yet are not given information on how that show is performing and the response has been we couldn't we don't have that information of course that information <laughs> they have is. so much information <laughs> i mean yeah it's a ridiculous <laughs> they probably argument. know what computer you're watching netflix on who's in the room what temperature yeah, it is like yeah. the met- most metricized age of watching of all time <laughs> absolutely yeah. so you know one of the one of the things that has been really um encouraging is that there has been a move towards a, a sort of streaming model residual payment yes very exciting that there has been this resolution that's been reached for the the writers, um, not yet for SAG-AFTRA. This new contract, it's going to affect pay and residuals, like you said, the use of AI, staffing plus health and pension benefits. So let's get into the specifics of this. Firstly, writers are going to receive a 5% raise immediately after this contract is ratified. I think it's going to be ratified later this month. I'd be really surprised if it wasn't. The deal uh, does bar the use of AI for writing or rewriting literary material and it forbids studios from enforcing writers to use it. However, it does allow for writers to choose to use AI to aid their writing upon receiving consent from studios. And I think it also allows for training to occur with AI, which is potentially concerning. I think consent Mm. would have to be um, confirmed beforehand. Um, And it it does also increase compensation for the writers and and adds new minimum staffing requirements for the TV writers room uh, based on the episode count. So there have been some really key changes as as far as that's financial support and this question of the role that AI is going to, going to play. Um, can I ask a question around uh, that what you said there about training? Mm. Do, does that mean uh, like a, 
like being used as training data or is it like training humans to use AI? What do we mean I by think it's AI using your materials to train the AI's yes. intelligence. So yeah. so in the same way that whenever we all put our faces into, you know, the <laughs> yearbook app, it's using pe- different people's artworks, different people's likenesses to learn how to better represent a person. Right. So for, in mm. the case of um, in a writing context, uh, anything that is like fed into the famously this week, uh, the, the Atlantic discovered this um, big database of, of novels that has been fed into a particular AI learning system um, without consent and with no copyright remuneration to train it to be better at doing creative writing. So they've put, you know, all of these Pulitzer winning novels in. Um, so I think it's I think it's to do with that. It's like, are we going to put the entire West Wing screenplay library into the AI mm. so that it can learn to write? a political TV show, for yes. example, I would imagine. Yes, and it has huge ramifications. So that is an interesting part to it because I don't know how that will play out. And it's great that we're going to be discussing the creator later because Gareth Edwards, the, the director of the creator, actually initially enlisted a company to um, use AI to create a Hans Zimmer score. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really? <laughs> Luckily. I don't want to do it. I knew they were kind of cutting measures on this film, but I didn't realise. Okay, go on. Yeah, sorry. Continue. Yeah, well, luckily, luckily he decided to go with On no diss to Hans. Hans. <laughs> I feel like that would be incredibly easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's one. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. We forget that these things are also just derivative. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is that there's something about that grey area between, you know, like all of those. I'm sure we spoke about this before, but like the whole Wes Anderson, like AI that's been created, like Star mm. Wars, but Wes Anderson style. When it's in the public field, it's so easy to replicate that. And, you know, we'll talk a bit more about the ways in which the creator replicates styles in, mm. <laughs> in many ways. In non-AI ways. In non-AI ways. But I just thought that was really interesting how that um, that crossover yeah. between how AI is being used. And without, you know, I mentioned transparency in terms of money before, but there's this transparency in how something was created as yeah, well. I have no idea how they're going to actually enforce any of this stuff mm, but yeah. like the line between what is AI and was not like using AI on your screenplay it's just sort of like is spell check on mm. these grammar correction tools you know are they AI or not like arguably yes they are uh, insofar as it's all natural language processing techniques mm. um, and so I'd be really interested to know how one enforces that like, things, things around like allowing things copyright you know owned material by an individual to be used and to be trained on an AI it's like when you say trained on an AI it's what you're saying is you're handing it over to like a third-party company mm. uh, who is then going to like create a model that mm. will then profit off it in some ways but if the thing is, like, we're not going to allow you to profit off it in the obvious way, which is to use it to write a script, because <laughs> these are all. So, so then, like, what, I don't know. There's a lots of. It's raising more questions that I yes. can possibly like fathom yes. to like grasp with, to be honest. And I feel like a lot of this has a lot to do with like the vagueness of which people are using the words mm. AI. And <laughs> yeah, yes. there's like, so many. It's things. like an umbrella term, I think. Yes, the, which the creator has this exact problem. Going into, <laughs> but just like the broadness with which we talk about it as like a singular behemoth rather than an amalgam of like a a lot of sets of techniques. Yes. So part of the negotiation with a, I always get this acronym wrong, AMPTP, (laughs) they, part of that, what is the future of AI Mm going to look like Mm. and, and what do we mean by AI? And that idea of the definition changing 
within a few years, within a decade, maybe in a few weeks. Um, <laughs> that was the hesitation around a lot of those negotiations and the wording around it. So, yeah, mm. I, I think you're completely right. It leaves so much – it just leaves so much space mm. for a company to come in and say this is not AI, this is yeah. like a specific yes. use of natural language Machine processing. Machine learning. Or, yeah, or like yeah. it's a generative model in a particular way. It, it, it's sort of – it leaves too much sp- space to say, oh, don't worry, it's not actually AI, it's just like a specific technique. Um I'm I'm concerned about that. Mm. Yes. But yeah. No, me too. And I think we should let listeners know that Tao, your PhD was all about AI. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you want to revisit that, but can you give us a little snapshot of, of what you t- discussed in your in your thesis? Yeah, yeah. So in my PhD, I, I looked at um, the relationship between AI and gender, uh, and I was looking at gender dimensions and racialized dimensions of AI across you know AI scientific histories, across uh, representations of popular culture, and in the commercial imaginary. So I was doing things like going into the archives of folks like Alan Turing, looking at the Turing test. I was looking at um, the Dartmouth Summer Research Project in Artificial Intelligence, which is um, the place where the term AI is coined. Um, Looking at, you know, things on film, which is like my love language, films like Wally, (laughs) which is like Ex Machina. And then I was also looking at um, how how gender and race is mobilised for the branding of commercial devices. So things like um, Amazon Echo, um, Mm. Apple Siri and so on. Uh, and right now I'm working in a, a big multidisciplinary centre looking at the social impacts of automated decision-making in society, mm. which includes like a lot of technical people, a lot of uh, um, social studies of technology folks like myself, a lot of humanities and other screen studies folks as well. So w- there's a lot of sort of back and forward around like the technical aspects and the cultural, cultural and social impacts of those things. Mm. It must be so bizarre watching this unfold. (laughs) I think it's really amazing. I mean, it's actually way more amazing to watch it as a as a worker myself, as a university Mm. worker myself, because all the stuff around um, how a studio is allowed to take your, you know, the proposition around taking your image and endlessly using it, Mm. that is something that educators should be worried about, to be honest with you, especially after COVID and after like such intensive periods of online learning Mm. um, that lectures have been recorded, so much content and material has been produced to be delivered in particular ways and that kind of belongs to the university now. So I, I think it's a pretty near future in which they like take you pay you for one semester of work and then they endlessly yep. repeat your material I, and then you're yes. just paid to like sit in a room and make sh- and tick people's names off. I definitely have had that where I've created content and I don't get paid for that content anymore. Mm. Um, it exists on as an educational tool. We're just grappling with this, aren't we? As it becomes more, you know, I keep using this general thing of AI, but like whatever form that takes, it is becoming more and more a part of our lives and we, how it's impacting labour yeah. relations. And uh, yeah, there's something thrilling about watching it play out on the on the global stage yes. because it makes you realize this affects all of us yeah and these are not abstract things mm. you know they're like entrenched in 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 life everywhere yes. at the moment and that's why I'm kind of like I would I would love to see us move away a little bit from using AI in these like large generic terms because really it's like it's it's platformization that's an issue yeah. it's like um, it's it's the corporate management of the university. It's it's treating knowledge as information transfer rather yeah. than like the coming together of people in a moment to learn. You know, it's it's 
there, there are larger like ideological transformations and there are larger uh, like technical technological transformations that are coming together and that's what we mean by AI but I think mm. we need to like break them apart and, and name them for what we are, for what they are yes um, to really see how actually most of our lives are affected by these things you know so many workers are on strike because arguably because of because of AI you know these mm. sorts of like uh, the kinds of ways in which labour is being devalued mm. and being labelled as unskilled. Uh, so, you know, in warehouse work, for instance, like mm. the use, you know, the, the whittling away of what a job is that used to be like a large broad swathe of skills and there's the automation of lots of it and the only things that are left are the things that are unautomatable and that's where you get a person in to do that stuff. Mm. I mean, they're not, they're not a skilled, they don't have, they're not treated as a skilled labourer, you know, and they're paid at the pittance and they're paid, you know, they work through these like highly casual like labor hire arrangements and are highly replaceable and it's just it's a real shame because you see that model coming into all other parts of you see that model being exported everywhere mm. including in the university I feel mm. like the platformization of labor in the university oh, yeah. is just like that that's why we're striking now because mm. if, if if like managers could come up with like Oh, air tasker. Like mm. air tasker for like RAs and professional staff and shooters, they would have it. In oh, a minute, they'd love where that. Where people yeah. have to bid to the bottom, <laughs> they would have that in a minute. Both the film industry and university system rely on that kind of competitiveness, that idea of there being this limited number of, yeah. of jobs. There's so much exploitation that is allowed to happen in yeah. both of these systems and so much uh, the lack of transparency as viewers as consumers would be so easy to not realise what's happening behind the scenes, to assume mm. that these, these, these people are making lots of money. They're not. Um, most of the people who are part of the the Writers Guild of America. They're, they're not, not even... They're barely able... They're actually below the... Um, the, the poverty line. Is, isn't it something like... <laughs> yeah. They can't get health insurance because they don't earn enough. And yeah. It's, well, it's and that was wild. another reason why the residuals were such a huge bargaining thing mm. because how it worked was you had to make a, a minimum amount... Um, to qualify for the health insurance through the guild mm. and a lot of people wouldn't make that up through their residuals. So they mm. might actually, you know, go in one writer's room or, or sell a spec script, get to kind of, I don't know, 15000 but then you mm. would make a couple of extra grand through your residuals and then you would hit that 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 floor for the healthcare coverage. Mm. So that has been the great tragedy, another of the great tragedies of the streaming era is that with the lack of residuals, people are losing their healthcare. And we know that yeah. in America when you don't have healthcare coverage, very quickly, you know, you can end up with a thirty, fifty, hundred thousand dollar hospital bill. Do you think that this win for the Writers Guild of America? Do you think that's going to mean that the SAG after a strike will also resolve itself soon? I would hope so. Um, I haven't sort of gone deeply into the sort of analysis around that. I think, I believe they're going back into negotiations this, like back to the table mm. this week. So uh, I think that's a good sign. Mm. I think that there has been, you know, some really impressive like inter-union solidarity across America and particularly in LA um, where hotel workers have been striking. Um, there's been a lot of support from, uh, you know, the Teamsters and IATSE, so the sort of Hollywood adjacent unions. Mm. Um, and I think that's really encouraging. I think, you know, the, the unionising that is beginning to happen in the SFX industry, which is probably relevant to our discussion of the creator later um, tonight. But yeah, I think I think that is a good sign. I mean, there was a great, there was a fantastic, I, I hate to quote tweets, but somebody <laughs> wrote back in July said, usually if a group of writers and actors are united against you, that means you are the antagonist of a Muppet movie. It's crazy to me that the AMPTP continually think they're going to yes. win, that they ever think that they will win. Like, Because yeah. ultimately what it comes down to is 
um, you know, these are the people who have made you rich. Yes. Uh, and the reality is, at least right now, whatever they think AI is, is not going to be able to create the next Barbie movie. No. You know, the next Game of Thrones, whatever the thing is that has lined their pockets well, personally. The challenge for the SAG-AFTRA strikers is that balance between people not thinking of it as rich people versus rich people. Yeah. Because some of the big names that are getting involved, it's fantastic to see them, but it could affect it in a, in a negative way. I, yeah. Um, so I, it's, it's, a, it's a really delicate, delicate balance. I think that there is, you know, there, the initial kind of reaction is often, that's not even a real job, you're all rich. Um, and I think the more that people disseminate the the realities of the workplace which it it often is not great even for the rich people you know we've (laughs) I mean me too is a case in point like yes um so it has and it's also been good to see a lot of those you know top tier um superstars donating a lot of money to strike funds so you know I'd like to see more of that I think that was great yeah I feel like we could dedicate a whole nother episode into what's been happening with the Drew Barrymore show but we won't (laughs) we won't crack that open (laughs) um just just good Google it. It's it's fascinating to see what's happened there. And we will, of course, continue to keep a really close eye on how things progress with the SAG after a strike negotiations. Um, And you can listen back to our earlier discussion of the strikes on the 17th of July. That episode is up on rrr.org.au. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. In the creator, directed and written by Gareth Edwards, a future war rages between the human race and artificial intelligence. Joshua, an ex-Special Forces agent played by John David Washington, is recruited to hunt down and to kill the creator, who is an elusive architect of advanced AI. It was really difficult to come up with a plot summary of this film because it, it is... <laughs> there's a lot of different... St- there's a lot of shit that happens, OK, in this film. Before we get into this, I think we should first talk about Gareth Edwards. I think listeners would be familiar with his work but may not have his name as, as kind of that memorable. Um, most famously, Rogue one 2016 film Godzilla from 2014 and Monsters from 2010 which was his his debut feature Rogue One I love this film but there was a lot of controversy as to how much of that was Edward's doing um (laughs) (laughs) as a quick little um you know I I forgot who was brought in um I think it was Tony Gilroy I mean it was um, I think there were a few there was a few people Mm. brought in basically lots of reshoots were involved um Edwards has actually come out more recently now that the creator is on the scene to say, to kind of challenge some of that narrative, which is interesting. It's obviously impossible to know exactly what went on in the editing room, but yeah, the question of how much uh, creative control he has over the final Rogue One that we saw is in question. But basically, Edwards, he got his start in, in special effects. He also, in 2008, entered and also won the Sci-Fi London 48-Hour Film Challenge. Do you know how? Yeah, you have what to make, is this? No, I don't know about you, this. You have What's to make this? a film in two days, basically. Oh. Um, I really love these sorts of competitions because it's just like fits in just this these fantastic limitations yes. and you just see what comes out of it. But, yeah, he, he won that back in 2008. Yeah, and he, he's gone on to be this kind of like really interesting figure of poten- with potential, I suppose. Yeah. So I think there's been a lot of hype around the creator. That's kind of where we're at 
with it. Um, there was like a trailer released um, back in July, I think it was. It was impacted by by the strike action, which is really interesting because the film itself is talking about, a, well, at least in at least in the plot <laughs> summary that we get given, is talking about the, this sort of conversation between AI and, and the human race. Whether that happens, that's uh, <laughs> that's part of our chat now. We mentioned before the question of whether it's a blockbuster. Mm. Perhaps not a blockbuster if it's sort of determined by, by if cost. It, if it's just the bottom line, then no. Uh, I mean, it's it's crazy to say that an $80 million film is not a blockbuster, <laughs> but it really isn't these days. You know, mm. films are costing $250 million, mm. uh, and films that look much worse than this film. I think for all of Gareth Edwards' fairly considerable failings as a screenwriter, um, I think he is an incredible um, visual artist, essentially. Mm. You know, I think... A lot of what is really memorable about Rogue One, even Godzilla, which I think had its moments. Um, Did it? Are these images. Uh, well, I mean, I, 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 so I, I, when I was an entertainment journalist, um, went to the set of Godzilla and, and he showed us some previews um, for what would later transpire to be obviously the only sequences they let him really have any creative control over and they were quite striking. Okay. Um, yeah. But, yeah, he, um, I think the making of this is really interesting. They shot a lot of it on location and kind of dropped mm. the effects in later mm. and they used a comparatively very cheap camera. So they used yeah. a, a $4,000, what were they? the awful term prosumer so uh, you know a very good consumer camera it's like a sony fx3 what is it like an iphone 13 <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure he would if he could <laughs> i love that I, I love that approach though i think that there's a lot to be learned for filmmakers yeah yes. and and for studios to know that that a film like that looks like this uh we'll talk about the content but that that looks like this can be made for that budget and that idea of of shooting on location having yeah local crew and then doing all the special effects afterwards it's really it's a it just shows it can be done well i think it's a bit of a kind of rejoinder to this idea which has really taken flight of the like the led you know, volume capture, um, which we've got one here in Docklands. It's basically a big room with enormous LED screens that are, you can shoot. But mm. They look good for sort of backgrounds. I think the, the tech is still not quite amazing if it's something kind of closer to the, mm. the foreground of the shot. But, um, you know, a lot of the Disney Plus shows are shot like that, um, the Marvel shows and the, and the Star Wars shows. So it is, it is in that way, I think it's a really successful kind of experiment yeah, yeah. absolutely but, i mean it's like ironically the only possible through like the development of particular ai power you know like true. yeah i mean it's like the promise of ai cost cutting has actually delivered in this specific mm. instance um like to be able to like do a shot uh like map it computationally yeah and then like lay lay all of the animation you know the animated like parts of the set on top of like landscapes mm. is only possible through these like particular forms of mapping and it's incredibly successful i mean i mm. just assumed that there was something there you know there are some mm. shots in very you know in the middle of forests in in farms where it looks like Surely they had, you know, a green ping pong table, something. And, mm. yeah, so I was quite shocked to discover that there yeah, was just and nothing Yeah, same there. with the actors as well, right? They didn't use any of the, like, covering them in dots. I can't remember. I don't know what that is <laughs> called. Motion capture. Motion capture, excuse me. <laughs> uh, they didn't do any of that. It was, like, closer to what they did with Ex Machina. It was just, right. like, they shot and then just, like, 
again, just laid it on top of actors. Um, Fascinating. Or, yeah, which mm. is, again, unthinkable unless you have a certain amount of compute power, yes. unless you have that compute power to be really accessible. Like this is a real age of AI film in some mm. ways, not just because of the, actually probably less because of the content, <laughs> <but> specifically <laughs> because of the techniques used to make it. And while we're still talking about the making of, I mentioned the trailer being uh, sort of released pretty uh, much earlier this year, there was a lot of controversy yeah. about this. I don't know if you both heard about it. It's based Basically, this Reddit user pointed out that it, it featured this footage of, of um, the 2020 Beirut explosion as, as this kind of visual effects. Yeah, kind of li- lightly, you know. <laughs> yeah. This idea. What do you mean? Sorry, can you? Ex- I have not been following so, this. Can yeah, you so oh, the, it was quite shocking. Yes, so the trailer mm. for the film had the footage of the Beirut explosion was just put in as though it was this um, set up as this uh, futuristic Los Angeles being you know destroyed by a nuclear explosion. Mm. Yes. So they'd like dropped in a couple of ex- you know yes. literally just more like modern houses, shot. but yeah, yes. like probably using the tech that you were just discussing. And but so the actual kind of mechanics of the the moment were just reality. Yes, really? yeah. yeah. So. That- Oh. It's it's wild. So Edwards did talk about this and he said, look, often we do use this sort of like foot- temp footage. Temp footage. Yeah, but who is <laughs> who lets that go out? <laughs> like fair enough if it's just like, oh, we just quickly drafted up something. Yeah. But this is your release of this film that is so hotly anticipated. Who's checking that? Who greenlit this? Mm. <laughs> I mean, they talk about it as archival footage. <laughs> It's more than archival footage. It's, yeah. it's really you it's know, shocking he, that that exists. And I, I think that that actually is a, a big um, – I don't even know how to describe it. It is a feature of Gareth Edwards' work uh, mm. and he famously made a like proof-of-concept trailer for, for Godzilla, um, which was shown at Comic-Con. It's actually very hard to find now, which is a shame because it's sort of fascinating in a grim way. But it, he did this um, you know, special effects shot of a – Kaiju, post-kaiju attack, but used um, uh, Oppenheimer's, uh, you know, now I'm become death. And and I think there was some other footage in there. So he has, he does have quite an mm. uneasy, uh, I don't know if it's a special effects guy thing or it's like everything is just material. But yeah, I feel oh. like he's, and also at the start of Godzilla, there's a lot of uh, inverted commas archival material as well of, you know, um, bikini at all tests oh, and things like that. that's so interesting. Yeah. Because that to me is like, when I said like, you know, this is like a real age of AI film, this is what I mean in some ways, that it treats like all of visual culture as up for grabs. Yeah. yeah. You know, like it's, that is like, um, like everything is just a neutral training point that can yes. be drawn upon. Yeah. And this is like why talking about historic data is like really murky because like history is just anything that has just happened. So mm. it's just like, you know, like uh, the Beirut, that just happened. Yes. You know, I mean, it's just, like everything is up for grab everything is like ontologically flat and yeah. Can be drawn yeah. upon as, uh, yeah for training uh it's like you know this this the whole film felt like that to me like the mm. o- the real overtones of like vietnam war yeah. like, oh, that's all, so heavy-handed very very heavy-handed like i was just waiting for like a monk to set himself on fire yeah. to be honest yeah. you know it's a real um you know, it's it's not it's beyond postmodern. You know, postmodern yeah. at least is like nodding and referencing and like is pastiche and honors and is inspired by. This is something else. Yeah. This is like a real like not inspired by but trained upon in a yeah. really like you know feckless and really like kind of uh, like it sees all things through this politically neutral lens. I found that very unpleasant. Like yes. I, I think that that was the film's major failing. Well, um, it erases the specificity of those historical events and even those films that are you know like. He keeps talking about like Apocalypse Now as this yeah. reference point, but you're right, Tao. It's like where it's not a homage. It's it's like this sort of 
mapping imagine, onto imagine it. Imagine if we bombed a bunch of... You know what I mean? It's just like, we did, guys. Yes. <laughs> this is not science fiction, guys. You know, it's sort of like the barely, you know, the just like... But just treating them as if as if all of the visual archive is fiction yes. is really disturbing. And yes. then I think the knock-on effect of that was that in using those, in inverted commas, images, which are real things, mm. uh, to create this kind of milieu, it also traps... I mean, there's no other way to say it. It's it's Asia. It is literally New Asia in the film. I mean, I think I seem to remember there were a couple of, like, location tags, like, we are now in this city. But a lot of it was sort of... Oh. Just this, you know, Amorphous. mishmash. Yes. Yeah. And yes. so it then by virtue of saying we want it to look a bit like these images that we like from the Vietnam War or from Cambodia, it then also damns all of these people to be living in this supposedly technologically advanced twenty what was it, twenty seventy six or something. Yeah. Like it's still the nineteen forties, which I just mm. <laughs> was like, unless you're in the Japan coded city <laughs> where mm. the sex robots are. Like mm. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I mean yeah, I mean I think you can really tell that it wasn't um, an American filmmaker who made this film. Mm. Uh, it has like no romanticism, no allegiance to the concept of America, like Americans. Yeah. It's like to even describe this as an AI versus humanity film, I think is incorrect. It's just it's like America versus the rest of the world. <laughs> That's right. yeah, and like totally. New Asia represents rest of the world. Yeah. You know? And it actually to me like had more overtones of like Brexit you know yeah. like, he's, a, he's a British filmmaker let's not forget so it felt when New Asia to me felt like a cipher for like <laughs> Europe like the European <laughs> Union it's just like we have this allegiance of like other countries that know how to speak other languages like that can speak together you know that have no problem like using each yeah. other's language and so many of Americans coming through and being like shut up and just like you know that's just um yeah it it, it was it was something – it's like just, just flatly laying these mm. like other yes. geopolitical themes on top of and, – and like it's like using an American mask on top of like a British man's face or something. It's crazy. Oh, also kind of wild that for a film that is on its surface about AI, there's really no discussion or in-depth grappling with – what this relationship between humans and AI would be. Like, I, I, yeah. I got so hyped. I actually like started watching this film and I was like, oh, this is better than I was expecting. I heard terrible reviews and I was kind of like on board. Mm. I was like, maybe this could be better than I thought. Yeah. And then very and then... quickly... <laughs> That's what I mean. It's like I, not I, yeah. about AI at no, all. No, it's really and, not. And really in the script, it's because in many ways the script, you know, the whole time you're watching it and thinking like, oh, this is this is like Kundan. <laughs> this is like the golden <laughs> child. No way. Now it's like 12 Monkeys. Oh, this is that bit in Akira. Oh, it's like the Mandalorian. It's Children of Men now. Yeah. This is what I mean. Like, like, it's Rain Man. Yeah, yeah. It's so many of these other, yeah. like, films that it's, like, inspired by. But for me, there's, like, no – there's no, like, respect and reference. It's no. just, like, take – just take, 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 take from all yeah. these different things. So that's what I mean. Like, AI could be an alien. AI could be, like – it could just be magic. It could just be – it could be, like, uh, like a greater power and religiosity. Oh, it, it is be, totally interchangeable with anything and it could be literally anything yes yeah we talk about this being an original Mm. story but this question of um yes okay it's not ip but (laughs) it's not particularly way (laughs) yeah it's not particularly original otherwise this borrowing Mm. from other films 
you know, a lot of people have spoken positively about the world building. And, but like, there are elements. What world building? Well, I thought maybe the closest I came was that, you know, that bird of prey-like thing. That thing was cool, yeah. It was yeah. kind of cool. But I think that's Gareth Edwards to a T. It's like some cool images. I mean, yeah. I don't want to – look, he seems like a lovely guy. I think he's a really <laughs> – I think he's an interesting filmmaker from the perspective yes. of someone who is also an effects practitioner and yeah. that often, you know, like um, uh, Neil Blomkamp yes. I and mean, James Cameron, like that is mm. a, a, tr- a tried and true path. Mm. But I think he is not thinking about these things as deeply as, say, Tony Gilroy. Yeah. I mean, if you look, I love Rogue One, but if you compare that to Andor, which is this incredibly nuanced mm. film about like armed armed rebellion against fascism and Mon Mothma getting a divorce, like you can't compare the two. Like, and, and you mentioned Blomkamp before, like District 9 is such a different film to this and I think mm-hmm. there was a lot of really uh, original and in, yeah. in, innovative elements to that and it did sort of... And it was um, kind of made in a similar way. Yeah, yeah. totally. And I, So I think they're, they're definitely in conv- films that are in conversation together. I just was surprised by how shallow and surface level this film is and it's a shame and maybe that's the visual effects, like they are beautiful and it's really interesting the making of it. I had a hesitation around this film because of John David Washington who I just feel as though... Tenant for me, I really, I don't, <laughs> don't even go into this, but I really hate that film. Oh, I love it. But oh. go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have a the- I just, I was just not sure how John David um, Washington was going to perform in this. Mm. The role was written for him. So really interesting setup. I was surprised. He's pretty, I thought he does well. He's a great cry. He's, great. He's yeah, yeah. I thought he did well in it. And so I feel like this is one of his better performances. <laughs> That's probably the most positive thing I, I See, can say I, about Okay, this. look, I, Tenet I spent a lot of time watching for my PhD, but I think Tenet is underappreciated as a work of satire. And I genuinely, I think it's, it's, I think it is Christopher Nolan having a go at himself. There's, there's, there are too many moments in that film that are actively gags for it to be a mistake. Like when he has... Um, Robert Pattinson say, okay, in every law of physics, hard cut to the next scene. Like there's just, to me it's a very funny film. Okay. I was not laughing. Well, I was laughing but I was definitely laughing Okay. No, so I'm just like replaying that film in my mind but now with like a Benny Hill soundtrack. I'm like, yes, it is funny. But back to the creator. Yeah. What was your take on it, Tao? Okay, I had... I had followed nothing leading up to this. I didn't even know it was coming out. <laughs> I had like nothing except for except for you, Flick, saying like, "Do you want to watch the creator? I've heard it's terrible." <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "Great, Great sounds great." <laughs> And so my ex- and I actually had no idea it was going to be a film on this scale. I had no mm. idea who was in it. I had no idea. I'd know nothing oh, about okay. Gareth. I just like walked into <laughs> what the a cinema. Treat. Like, let's watch a film, um, which is my favourite way to watch films. Really, it's and like so rare. No, no preconceptions whatsoever. Yes. Um, and so yeah, I'm kind of I feel mixed in some ways. Um, in terms, like visually, it's, it's spectacular. Mm. Uh, and I think it, yeah, it, it looks amazing, but it has this like, it, it looks like a generative AI image, ironically for something that probably used way less AI than mm. like a lot of Marvel films yeah. or a lot of, even the last Indiana Jones film or whatever, yep. because of the, as it was saying, like there's so much shooting on, on, on site. Yeah. Um, um, and I think it has to do with like the color grading or something like the particular images of uh, like these Rogue One robots standing like, like in monk costumes mm. 
And that, there's something about the color grading that looks exactly the way like Dali 2 images come yeah. out or mid-journey mm, images agree. come out. There's, some, there's a really um, interesting moment where you think, oh, no, AI is going to be used to write films in the really derivative in particular ways. I think this is like the total opposite where we have like AI is setting like the visual and aesthetic standard and our humans are like writing and producing to this strange standard. Like that's this is the weird flip I think we're in now mm. uh, is that I think someone like uh, Gareth Edwards, his like mind is like so like his eye is so trained on these synthetic images. Yeah, that 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 everything he makes looks synthetic, whether it is on whether it is or not. Yes, um, that's something about that that's like strange and distracting. Same with the like f- the um, the storyline as well. It like it poaches so much. It's like strange and distracting. It could be literally again. We said interchangeable, but like. It's like the golden it's child. So, like, I was so like, so yeah. Baby Yoda. <laughs> Baby Yoda. Like, you know, I don't know. And in some ways I felt like this was like his Rogue One do-over. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like like so many of those bots look exactly like mm. the Star Wars universe. I feel like the press circuit around this already has a bit of, uh, you know, chip on and shoulder mm. sort of vibes. But, yeah, look, maybe if I'd been dragged like him over Rogue One, I'd also be doing that. Yeah. I just, I mean, I don't know if you both find it for us. I, I, I feel like I came out of that film feeling like one of those annoying YouTubers who just has like 20,000 questions about like oh, Clem, I, I, couldn't even write, perspective. I couldn't even write like, a plot about it <laughs> for example let's just say I mean I'll sort of dance around some of the plot points because I, I think people should go and see it so but there is you know there's a moment where where there's this discovery of something having been programmed to grow is is made and that this is apparently world beating in that case why are there so many old robots mm. were they just made to look like granddads like there are all these kind of like inconsistencies <laughs> where i think why do they sleep What's he that was about? what well, is he eating how What's can he do with how the can ice put cream? them on the charge <laughs> that's right she didn't even have ice cream in the fridge oh we don't have robots can be free in the fridge but we've got ice cream well we don't even have that yeah, yeah i just there were yeah. lots of little things that i just thought i wish this had gone through a few more drafts it honestly feels like the main thing is like a shoulder shrug just saying robots kind of look a bit like humans they don't they right. hey? <laughs> they're kind of helpful yeah but this that is what i mean when i say it. like this is like not about ai at all it's no like, it could be any other like species of anything yes uh like like substituted right in yeah um just watch okja you know just for- oh, oh, <laughs> i really felt for that pink no <laughs> More humanity in it, like, oh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> the least believable part of this film, I will say, is that like it depicted LAX as like a functional side. <laughs> like that they get to the airport and then within 10 minutes they're on a flight. I'm like, no, this is ridiculous. Yeah, this I've never, obviously, never been to LAX. Yeah. <laughs> well, the creator is currently playing at major and local cinemas around the country. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Clem Basto, Tao Fan, and myself, Flick Ford, on to Tonight's show, we provided an update on the Writers Guild of America strike, which was resolved last week. The SAG-AFTRA strike continues and we will provide updates as they become available. We also ruminated on the future of cinema and the role that AI might play and we finished up the hour with our review of Gareth Edwards' The Creator. As always, you can listen back to tonight's episode on the Triple R website, rrr.org.au or subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. A special thank you to Maya who edits our podcast and also helps out with the socials. Clem Tao, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having us. And we, pleasure. And it, we touched upon uh, the strikes that are happening at universities all around Melbourne at the moment. Absolutely. Solidarity, comrades. It is good night from us. But... 
Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 